Hello everyone and welcome to the September 17th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Skarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Department of Fair Employment and Housing reached a settlement in an employment discrimination case with the County of Los Angeles. The case involved two complainants who were denied or delayed positions with the county due to the county's overbroad pre-employment medical examination requirements. One of the complainants was denied a position with the Sheriff's Department for more than four years because it was revealed during her pre-employment medical exam that she had a thyroid condition, although she did not have any restrictions on her ability to perform the job. The other complainant was denied a position with the county when he revealed during his pre-employment medical exam that he had a prior knee injury, although he too did not have any work restrictions. The DFEH filed civil complaints in Los Angeles County Superior Court after its investigation found merit to the two complaints. As part of the settlement, the County of Los Angeles agreed to amend its civil service rules about pre-employment medical exams and will overhaul its medical examination process to only consider medical information that is directly relevant to the job being applied for. In addition, the county will provide regular disability discrimination training and has agreed to be subject to three years of monitoring by a neutral third party and the DFEH. The county will also pay $410,000 directly to a complainant and $150,000 to the DFEH for fees and costs. The second complainant previously resolved the financial aspects of his case. California employers are only permitted to seek medical information from applicants that is directly related to the job for which they are applying overbroad requests for medical information, or denying an applicant a job because of future risk of injury is unlawful. Employers in California and elsewhere are closely watching case law that slowly erodes limits to employer liability for actions regarding the use of medical marijuana outside the workplace. A recent decision in a federal trial court in Connecticut is one of these cases that are making employers nervous about their policies. In the case of Knopfsinger versus SSC Ninantic Operating, a federal judge ruled that refusing to hire a medical marijuana user because she tested positive on a pre-employment drug test violates Connecticut's medical marijuana law. The court granted summary judgment to the job applicant on her employment discrimination lawsuit. Plaintiff Caitlin Knopfsinger was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder in 2012 after being in an automobile accident. Her physician recommended treating her PTSD with medical marijuana, which she began using in 2015, in accordance with the Connecticut Palliative Use of Marijuana Act, P-U-M-A, or PUMA. Plaintiff registered with the Department of Consumer Protection in November 2015 as a qualifying patient for the use of medical marijuana. 
Knopfinger accepted a job offer from the defendant SSE Ninantic Operating Company, LLC, DBA Bridebrook Health and Rehabilitation Center. But the offer was contingent on drug testing, and plaintiff told the defendant that she was qualified under PUMA to use marijuana for medical purposes to treat her post-traumatic stress disorder. After her drug test came back positive for the THC consistent with the use of marijuana, the defendant rescinded its job offer. So she filed suit against the employer in federal court, and after the parties conducted discovery, they cross-moved for summary judgment. The employer, Bride Brook, argued that its refusal to hire Knopfinger is allowed by an exception to Puma's anti-discrimination provision when required by federal law or required to obtain federal funding. It argued that the Federal Drug-Free Workplace Act barred it from hiring Knopfinger because that law prohibits federal contractors from allowing employees to use illegal drugs and marijuana is illegal under federal law. But the court rejected the employer's argument noting that the Drug-Free Workplace Act does not require drug testing and does not regulate employees who use illegal drugs outside of work while off-duty. Similarly, the court rejected the employer's argument that hiring Knopfinger would violate the False Claims Act. It held that hiring an employee who uses medical marijuana outside of work while off-duty would not defraud the federal government. And the employer also argued that it did not violate Puma because it did not discriminate against Knopfinger based on her status as a medical marijuana user. Rather, it had relied on the positive drug test result. But the court dismissed this argument, concluding that acceptance would render a medical marijuana user's protection under the statute a nullity. This is a development at the trial court level in a jurisdiction outside of California, which is not binding precedent here. Nonetheless, employer law attorneys who have been watching these cases evolve in Connecticut and elsewhere suggest that employers should consider the marijuana laws affecting their workplaces now before an issue arises and adjust their policies as necessary. And now our fraud report. Lockwinder Singh and his corporation, Lovely Singh Incorporated, have been convicted for the illegal trafficking of pharmaceuticals. The company facilitated the shipment of controlled pharmaceutical drugs, such as hydrocodone, Xanax, and oxycodone, through the mail, while doing business as a franchise of shipping company Postal Annex in Lemon Grove, California. Couriers imported prepackaged quantities of controlled substances into the United States from Mexico and delivered them to the postal annexes. The substances were then illegally sold for prices ranging between $1 and $100. Singh attempted to set up nearly $3 million of currency transactions through 469 cash deposits at several domestic financial institutions in order to avoid detection. 
Singh conducted multiple deposits of less than $10,000 in cash on the same day and made deposits into at least 19 different bank accounts over the course of several business days. These deposits were conducted with the purpose of avoiding a currency transaction report, which is the report a financial institution must file for cash deposits exceeding $10,000 during any banking day. These cash deposits included money received in return for shipping controlled substances from the postal annex stores. Singh was ultimately charged with and found guilty of structuring currency transactions with one or more financial institutions. Lockwinder Singh, the CEO of the company, was sentenced to 36 months in federal prison. The sentence is one of the longest imposed in the Southern District of California for a structuring conviction. Singh's closely held corporation, Lovely Singh Incorporated, was ordered to forfeit $1 million and serve a five-year term of probation. Holly Merrill Miller pled no contest to misdemeanor workers' compensation fraud. She was a 33-year-old nursing assistant with Sutter Health when she allegedly suffered an injury to her wrist. She claimed a patient grabbed her hand, twisted it, and repeatedly jerked it, causing pain and swelling. Miller was placed on restricted duty by the treating physician, but she complained her pain was getting worse. Diagnostic images were taken, which did not show an obvious injury. However, Miller continued to complain of increased pain and stress. After canceling several medical appointments, she was returned to work and surveillance was conducted, which showed her using her right hand without any apparent limitations or pain. When the treating physician saw the video surveillance, he stated it was at odds with what Miller stated she could and could not do. The physician explained he had seen surveillance videos of her activity levels and was returning her to work with no restrictions. She was sentenced to three years probation and ordered to pay more than $8,000 in restitution. This case was investigated and prosecuted by the District Attorney's Insurance Fraud Unit. And in regulatory news, so far the California workers' compensation system has not been required to pay for medical marijuana as treatment for industrial injuries. But in 2014, New Mexico became the first state to have a state appellate court order a workers' comp insurance carrier to provide reimbursement to an injured worker for medical marijuana. Then the appellate division of the Maine Workers' Compensation Board affirmed two different administrative law judge awards reimbursing wor workers for their medical marijuana expenses. And later, an administrative law judge in New Jersey issued an order in the case of Watson v. 84 Lumber requiring reimbursement of an injured worker for a medical marijuana payment as well. And now U.S. Senators Brian Schatz and Bill Nelson introduced legislation to allow doctors at the Department of Veterans Affairs to prescribe medical marijuana to veterans in the 31 states that have established medical marijuana programs. This act is to be cited as the Veterans Medical Marijuana Safe Harbor Act.
The act proclaims that chronic pain affects the veteran population, with almost 60% of veterans returning from serving in the armed forces in the Middle East, and more than 50% of older veterans who are using the health care system of the Department of Veterans Affairs living with some form of chronic pain. And it says that in 2011, veterans were twice as likely to die from accidental opioid overdoses as non-veterans. The proposed law would allow veterans to use, possess, or transport medical marijuana and to discuss the use of medical marijuana with a physician of the Department of Veterans Affairs. In addition to creating a temporary five-year safe harbor protection for veterans who use medical marijuana, the bill would also direct the VA to research how medical marijuana could help veterans better manage chronic pain and reduce opioid abuse. The bill is supported by the American Academy of Pain Medicine and a number of veteran and marijuana advocacy groups. The bill, however, is in conflict with the Federal Controlled Substances Act. The federal government classifies marijuana as a Schedule I drug meaning it's perceived to have no medical value and a high potential for abuse. The classification puts marijuana in the same category as heroin and a more restrictive category than Schedule II drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine. And in medical news, chronic pain is one of the most common reasons adults seek medical care. And chronic pain contributes to an estimated $560 billion, that's billion dollars, each year in direct medical costs, lost productivity, and disability programs. The term high impact chronic pain, or HICP, is a new term that describes those with pain lasting three months or longer and accompanied by at least one major activity restriction. The concept of HICP was first proposed by the National Pain Strategy to better identify those with significant levels of life interference. The National Pain Strategy was core, had a core recommendation of the 2011 Institute of Medical Relieving Pain recommending that the HHS Secretary should develop a comprehensive population health level strategy for pain, prevention, treatment, management, education, reimbursement, and research. The National Pain Strategy is the first national effort to transform how the population burden of pain is perceived, assessed, and treated, and recognizes the need for better data to inform action and calls for estimates of chronic pain and the new high-impact chronic pain in the general population. Together, the high-impact chronic pain population constitutes some 4.8% of the U.S. adult population. About 83% of people with high-impact chronic pain were unable to work for a living and one-third had difficulty with self-care activities, such as washing themselves and getting dressed. Almost 11 million U.S. adults have high-impact chronic pain. Activity limitations were more common in the chronic pain population than in groups with other chronic health conditions, such as stroke, 
kidney failure, cancer, diabetes, or heart disease. Experts expect, expect that research with this new designation will help improve care for individuals living with chronic pain and strategically guide research programs that aim to reduce the burden of pain at the population level. And a new study shows that over the past decade, American doctors failed to provide a written medical justification for nearly one-third of opioid prescriptions. Researchers from Rand Corporation and Harvard Medical School published the study in the journal Annals of Internal Medicine. The data showed that 28.5% of the roughly 809 million doctor visits that resulted in a prescription for opioid painkillers lacked medical records showing a chronic pain condition or any symptoms of pain. Roughly 5.1% of opioid prescriptions were written for cancer patients suffering from breakthrough pain, while 66.4% were for patients with non-cancer-related pain. Researchers note that while a lack of documented justification does not necessarily reveal a nefarious purpose on the part of the doctor. It might explain, however, in part, how Americans became so dependent on opioids. For these visits, it is unclear why a physician chose to prescribe an opioid or whether opioid therapy was justified. The reasons could be truly inappropriate prescribing of opioids or merely lax documentation. But if a doctor does not document a medical reason for prescribing an opioid, it could mean that the prescription is not clinically appropriate. And a study published last August in the British Medical Journal shows that between 2007 and 2016, the percentage of commercially insured patients prescribed opioids held steady at 14%. But they found that the average dosage across all patients reviewed in the study was higher in 2016 than in 2017, to a point where you see a greater risk of overdose. Data released by officials with the Centers for Disease Control last July shows the majority of opioid-linked deaths are the result of synthetic opioids, opioids like fentanyl. Scientists at the Salk Institute have developed a technique to directly convert the cells in an open wound into new skin cells. The approach relies on reprogramming the cells to a stem cell-like state and could be useful for healing skin damage, countering the effects of aging, and helping us to better understand skin cancer. Scientists now have an initial proof of principle for in vivo regeneration of an entire three-dimensional tissue like the skin, not just individual cell types as previously shown. This knowledge might not only be useful for enhancing skin repair, but could also serve to guide in vivo regenerative strategies in other human pathological situations as well, as during aging, in which tissue repair is impaired. 
Cutaneous ulcers, wounds that can extend through multiple layers of the skin, are typically treated surgically by transplanting existing skin to cover the wound. However, when the ulcer is especially large, it can be difficult for surgeons to graft enough skin. In these cases, researchers are able to isolate skin stem cells from a patient, grow them in the lab, and transplant them back into the patient. However, such a procedure requires an extensive amount of time, which may put the patient's life at risk and is sometimes not effective. Now the researchers theorize that a critical step in wound recovery was the migration or transplantation of basal carotinocytes into wounds. These stem cell-like cells act as precursors to the different types of skin cells. But large, severe wounds that have lost multiple layers of skin no longer have any basal keratinocytes. And even as these wounds heal, the cells multiplying in the area are mainly involved in wound closure and inflammation rather than rebuilding healthy skin. The researchers wanted to directly convert these other cells into basal keratinocytes without ever taking them out of the body. Thus, they set out to make skin where there was no skin to start with. When the team topically treated skin ulcers on mice with the four factors, the ulcers grew healthy skin, known as epithelia, within 18 days. Over time, the epithelia expanded and connected to the surrounding skin, even in large ulcers. At three and six months later, the generated cells behaved like healthy skin cells in a number of molecular, genetic, and cellular tests. The researchers are now planning more studies to optimize the technique and begin testing in additional ulcer models. Dr. Richard Sackler, a former president of Purdue Pharma, which is the controversial drug manufacturer widely considered to have ignited the opioid epidemic through its aggressive marketing of OxyContin, has been awarded a patent for a new opioid addiction treatment. Sackler was instrumental in pushing OxyContin sales through one of the largest pharmaceutical marketing campaigns in history. The campaign worked as doctors previously adverse to prescribing opioids for pain management due to their addictiveness were convinced by Purdue's aggressive tactics that OxyContin was safe to prescribe. Purdue later admitted that its marketing campaign was a sham. The company was ordered to pay $635 million after it and three top executives pleaded guilty to misleading doctors about the addictiveness of OxyContin and its potential for abuse. Put into perspective, the fine they paid represents less than one quarter of the sales revenue OxyContin generated for the Sacklers during that six-year period. Now, critics express concern that Sackler, whose family is worth an estimated $13 billion, largely from Purdue's sale of opioid painkillers, now stands to profit further from medication that treats addiction to the very drugs peddled by his family. 
The patent covers a new formulation of buprenorphine in a wafer form. The medication is shown to help people struggling with opioid addiction, and the Food and Drug Administration has already approved the drug in tablet and film form. Purdue's legal wars are legal woes are far from over. The company is currently facing over 400 lawsuits from cities across the country, in addition to 26 lawsuits by state attorneys general for downplaying the risks of OxyContin as part of an allegedly fraudulent marketing scheme to boost sales of OxyContin. Ever wonder why some people seem to feel less pain than others? Well, a study conducted at Wake Forest School of Medicine may have found one of the answers. It's called mindfulness. Mindfulness is related to being aware of the present moment without too much emotional reaction or judgment. Some people are more mindful than others, and those people seemingly feel less pain. The study is an article in press published ahead of print in the journal Pain. The researchers analyzed data obtained from a study published back in 2015 that compared mindfulness meditation to placebo analgesia. In this follow-up study, researchers sought to determine if dispositional mindfulness, which is an individual's innate or natural level of mindfulness, was associated with lower pain sensitivity and to identify what brain mechanisms were involved. In this study, 76 healthy volunteers who had never meditated first completed a reliable clinical measurement of mindfulness to determine their baseline levels. Then, while undergoing functional magnetic resonance imaging, they were administered painful hit stimulation at 120 degrees Fahrenheit. A whole brain analysis revealed that higher dispositional mindfulness during painful heat was associated with greater deactivation of a brain region called the posterior cingulate cortex. In those that reported higher pain, there was greater activation of this critically important brain region. So the study adds information helpful to target this brain region in the development of effective brain therapies. And more importantly, this work shows that physicians should consider a person's level of mindfulness when calculating why and how one feels less or more pain. Mindfulness can be increased through relatively short periods of mindfulness meditation training. So this may prove to be an effective way to provide pain relief for the millions of people suffering from chronic pain. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for workers' compensation news on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd Scarin Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.